Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Military History. Uh, this episode is live from the Society for Military History in Louisville, Kentucky. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. As you may recall from earlier interviews, I find biography to be a very challenging format for military historians to work with. You know, on the one hand, it is possible that I guess you could become so devoted to the sources and subject that you can lose focus or, or become unwilling, perhaps, to self-edit your own work. On the other hand, biography frequently calls upon historians and authors to step outside of their particular expertise or frame of reference as they strive to account for the full scope of their subjects' lives. Now, fortunately, this has not proven to be an issue for Stephen Osad, the author of one of this year's most acclaimed biographies about a military figure, Omar Nelson Bradley, America's G.I. General. Steve is no stranger to biography. He's co-authored a a work a biographical study of Major General Maurice Rose, the commander of 3rd Armored Division, until he was killed in action March 1945. For that book, Steve received the General and Mrs. Matthew Ridgway Military History Award and an Army Historical Foundation Distinguished Writing Award in acknowledgement of his contributions to the field. As of this interview... The book we are discussing here has been awarded the 2018 Society for Military History's Distinguished Book Award and is a shortlist of finalists for the 2018 Army Historical Foundation's Distinguished Writing Award. Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Bob, especially for that very generous introduction. Let's let's get to it. You're certainly comfortable in working in the mode of biography. And I start by asking... Is there any particular why you, reason why you've chosen biography? I think it's a, a personality question, and I see myself as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And when I come across a compelling figure, uh, particularly one that's unknown or has a, a common sense handed down interpretation attached to him or her, um, it sets off a desire to dig deeper mm-hmm. um, and create a narrative around the subject um, so that I can explore questions about the subject in context and in a narrative setting. Uh-huh. But I think you're right. There are pitfalls in pursuing biography, uh, and I've faced them and been laid low by them as well. And uh, Certainly the the most dangerous to a biographer is to become too enamored of the subject. Sure. Uh, And that's a a very difficult balance to maintain uh, and is hard, uh, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Now, with Bradley, I didn't come to the story with a compelling point of view one way or the other. It was an exploration that began in discussions with a mentor, Martin Blumenson, a very well-known official historian of World War II, one of the yeah. authors of uh, 
author of two of the green books. Right. And he'd been encouraging me uh, through discussions after the Maurice Rose book um, as to what to do next. Mm -hmm. We considered a number of subjects. I I definitely wanted to go higher in the chain of command. Sure. uh, And I wanted a a broader story than just a division commander, even though that was an incredibly interesting story. Yeah. And when Martin suggested Omar Bradley, I was lukewarm, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Then when I dug deeper uh, and I saw how he was viewed, what the general historical interpretations of his battles and his campaigns were, I thought that there was uh, an opening there for a different point of view. Sure, sure. Well, before before we talk about Bradley, I, I want to follow up on a point and actually give you an opportunity to, to give some advice to potential listeners, or listeners who are potential authors, rather. What recommendation would you offer them, anyone who's listening to this, who might be considering following a similar path? being published. Well, first, I would caution anybody who wants to do work at this level that it's very, very difficult, Sure. particularly when you're not in the profession. Mm-hmm. And there are many tools and skills that you need to pick up. Right. Uh, the most important of those skills is archival expertise. Right. And that's crucial, was right. crucial for all the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. and is an absolute necessary condition. Yeah, let, let, let me jump on that. I mean, you come to this work and, and this field and profession kind of through an outside track. I mean, you, you didn't go through academia. You came to, to becoming an author after an earlier career on Wall Street as an analyst. How does that help you? What, what, what advantage does that give you? I think it gave me a terrific advantage. One, the work that I did was research. Mm -hmm. It was intensive industry research. Mm -hmm. Generally, uh, the goal was to produce a recommendation, a buy or sell recommendation on a particular stock. Right. But that was just the end state. The process involved considerable research Mm -hmm. into a company's products, its structure, its competitive environment, Mm -hmm. and most important, its management. Right. That was a a real edge in the sense that I've been evaluating top-level managers for the better part of 25 years. Uh, So I think that that was really important. Yeah, I mean, I, I first and foremost, an army commander is first and foremost a manager of persons and resources. So you're perfectly qualified then. Well, I would say that, uh, that most of the military figures that I've interviewed mm-hmm. would probably take exception to that mm-hmm. because they would they would argue that what they're doing is on a a plane where the risks and the costs and mm-hmm. so on are so much greater and beyond what a manager faces. On the other hand, um, I never met a manager of a certain level who didn't see himself as as a general. Right. And it is true that in the last 25, 30 years, there has been, as I see it, my interpretation anyway, is there's more of a management ethos about military affairs than in any other period. Well, I think you would see, you argue, and maybe we're, we're going on a diversion here, but I think you can argue, too, if you look at the experience of the United States Army 
from the 1930s up until the Second World War, there was a great deal of emphasis placed on managerial skills and qualifications, particularly leveraging American strategic military potential to action in the field and how to, to transform you know, the arsenal of democracy into a war-winning instrument. And then we look, we can look at people like Eisenhower and Bradley as, you know, managers in the sense that they had to work with difficult subordinates. They had to work in, in, uh, you know, coalition warfare with different partners requiring a different set of skills and needs. I think that's a fair observation. Yeah. Uh, I think it's uh, also true that the discussions these days even in business, are more about leadership than management. Mm -hmm. And there's a distinction being made there that's certainly worth exploring. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just to get back to the the question of being an outsider, (laughs) um, I will say that anyone who wants to work in the field of military history comes into it with a real advantage because the community, the professional society itself, is extraordinarily welcoming and open. And I don't need to do a commercial for the society. This is my direct experience over the last 15 years when Mm -hmm. I first decided I would do this. Mm -hmm. I have have lots of great stories and vignettes about help along the way, encouragement along the way, Mm -hmm. especially when things looked bleaker uh, and the project was underway. Right. So uh, there's a real advantage there. Um, finally, I, I think I was lucky in the sense that I'm not burdened by a lot of the academic questions mm-hmm. and schools and controversies. Sure. Most of them I don't even know. And those that I'm aware of, I can put in the background. So I wouldn't call it objectivity mm-hmm. necessarily. Right. Because I have my own subjective faults, but it, it does give you a kind of uh, remove from what is um, tearing away at your subject. Sure. Well, I think that the, the merits, again, of your approach and the skills and gifts you have are, you know, given ample testimony through the recognition you've received. Thank and, you. Yeah. You know, again, you know, I... Uh, point out for anybody of our listeners who may not be an academic but is hoping someday to to pre- contribute to the field don't lose heart when you can be talking to someone like Steve Allside who you know has, has paved the way for you thank you so well let's let's go on to it all right you know I I am amazed how little there's been written about Bradley I mean if there are some books Chet Hansen's books he's referencing Carla to Esty uh, Martin Bloomson references him but Considering how significant and important a person, a, a commander and leader he was, I have to ask, why was that the case? I mean, is he that private a man, perhaps? Or was he just overshadowed by other people around him? I think it's the latter. I think that he was cursed, in a sense, with having a fantastic superior who claims the attention of historians and biographers, mm-hmm. Eisenhower, and a sometime subordinate, sometime superior, and a genuine character in yeah. George Patton. So that's that's 
one element. Mm -hmm. An extension of that is the treatment that Patton received in the iconic movie, the 1970 movie. I was going to ask about that. Please continue. Yeah. Well, that, that pretty much said the common sense, as I referred to before, the common sense handed down view of Bradley, mm -hmm. that he's the kind of guy that you need to have around, but not particularly interesting, Yeah. not particularly dramatic, not inclined to take risks. Yeah, uh, kind of deferential. Deferential, humble, um, quiet. In fact, I think I said in the introduction that it's difficult to go down a list of adjectives without getting too stupid mm -hmm. or not too bright, which I think some observers felt. Mm -hmm. So there was a real gap there. You're right. There are very few biographies. I mm -hmm. believe that mine is the only critical biography mm -hmm. in, the, in the sense of really taking a step back and looking at... The well, that's another dimension, too, is just how carefully his reputation was guarded by people close to him at the end of his life and afterwards. But we could come to that later, certainly. Yeah, it's just amazing this the the power of Carl Malden's portrayal of him in the nineteen seventy film Patton. The and film itself has its own story, uh and the portrayal is all the more perplexing because Bradley and his second wife Kitty Mm -hmm. Kitty, who was a screenwriter and a, mm -hmm. had a presence in Hollywood and probably had a lot to do with arranging with Frank McCarthy, who, who the producer and a one-time aide to George Marshall during the war. Yeah. That, uh, and also that she was able to negotiate a very, very lucrative deal that mm -hmm. essentially made the Bradleys wealthy from that point on. Yeah. But the portrayal is as we now know, stiff, yeah. and it doesn't really convey in many aspects what was actually happening at the time. Absolutely. I mean, beyond just the normal uh, license that creative artists are allowed to take. Sure. How does Omar Bradley come to the military in the first place? I mean, he's, he's not... I want to caveat this. I mean, in the surface, it seems like a not traditional path, but then you look at a lot of these... Guys who were in the class of the stars, in the class of 1913 and 1915, they all do kind of come from this same background. Well, Bradley was possibly the poorest kid in his class. Yeah. He grew up hard scrapple, barefoot, son of an itinerant teacher mm -hmm. and mostly farmer, mm -hmm. um, and just rural background almost taught by his father because the equivalent schoolhouses of that day might have seven or eight different grades sure. in one one place um, and he never at least I couldn't find any real evidence that he'd ever seriously thought of going into the military mm -hmm. it was a decision that I believe he made fairly quickly after he heard from a longtime family friend that a West Point education was free. Yeah. And he, at that point, had graduated from high school, was working in the railroad, mm -hmm. and I think decided that this 
would be a good way to get to college. Yeah. Now, his path, though, was different than most of his classmates in the sense that the law at that time only allowed uh, each representative and each senator together to pool mm-hmm. and nominate one candidate. Right. Um, shortly before the time came for Bradley to actually apply, the law was changed. Mm-hmm. So they were allowed another candidate. Well, right. it turned out that that candidate had already been named, mm-hmm. but Bradley decided he would go through the process anyway and take mm-hmm. the tests. And again, as it turned out, that candidate failed the physical right. and Bradley showed up, but he showed up on the first day of August. Mm-hmm. All of the main welcoming acts of initiation, the beast barracks barracks and a a military encampment preliminary. Mm -hmm. Um, He was absent, Mm -hmm. showed up with the others and were thereafter branded Augustines for August. And not one of them, to my knowledge, rose in cadet rank until the final year. Mm. It was understood. Yeah. Uh, Terrible act of exclusion. Mm-hmm. And the only way that Bradley was able to overcome it was through athletics. Well, I was going to say, I mean, he really was quite an athlete. I mean, it's amazing. He still holds several records you point out. And Incredible throwing arm. That's yeah. what keeps coming through. Yeah. Does that, you know, you look at somebody like Bradley who is ostracized as an outsider. He comes from poverty. No doubt a little shy about, you know, it's it's around his peers. Does his rise connect directly to his athletics ability? I mean, I'm trying to get to, is there, you know, we see in another outlet for his character that people aren't aware of, but they're watching and they're responding to that. Bradley was a team player. Yeah. He excelled at team sports. He loved F Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was lucky that he was assigned by height, as they all were, uh, and E and F were the tallest guys, and yeah. they were generally the athletes. So there again, that gave him access. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I pointed out, in terms of cadet command, it was very late, although he did rise very high mm-hmm. in only one year. Yeah, uh, Sports, I guess it's true anywhere. Yeah is a formative experience, particularly in a men's college where mm-hmm. I went, mm-hmm. it, it was very important and you had to find a way to do something. Yeah. If you weren't a great athlete, you had to participate in intramural sports. Mm-hmm. You had to find some way. He was lucky and good. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, he still holds records, yeah. uh, which is astounding when you think of how the games have changed. Sure. Also, it gave him gave Bradley a window into others with whom, under whom, over whom he would serve during the war. Mm-hmm. And he demonstrated keen insights into some of these personalities mm-hmm. during the war and in his assessment of how they would behave. My favorite example is Leland Hobbs, who was a very famous athlete, won the saber for participating uh, at varsity level in three sports, and then was a commander of uh, the 30th Infantry Division under Bradley in several uh, very, very important campaigns. Mm -hmm. And in one in particular, the Battle of Mortain, the German counterattack early in August, it was Leland Hobbs' division backed with a few combat commands 
uh, from armored divisions mm -hmm. that basically held off five German panzer divisions. Yeah. And it was Hobbes. At one point, Bradley reflects on that and remembers Hobbes on the line and Mark remarks about that jaw. Yeah. Once he saw that Leland Hobbs would put his jaw out there, he knew that he would hold. <laughs> now, that's something that you learn on on a playing field about yeah. somebody. And frequently, it's truthful insights. Sure. So sure. I think that was, that was a real advantage for him. Well, you know, he graduates in 1915, but he doesn't go to Europe. He misses, misses that. Normally, you would expect soldiers to advance in grade, you know, want to have that experience behind them to facilitate their advancing grade. I mean, combat connects to future advancement. How does Bradley compensate for that? It's definitely true that he felt that he had been passed over by history yeah. by not participating in the war. Mm -hmm. Same as Dwight Eisenhower and mm -hmm. a number of others. It was in his experience in army schools, particularly at the infantry school at Denning, which was very important to the evolution development of his career, right. primarily because of his contact and association with George Marshall. Yeah. But it was also at an earlier stint at that school mm -hmm. um, and other experiences with veterans of World War I, where he realized that he was just as competent, just as professionally prepared. And in fact, uh, touching back to what we were talking about earlier about being on the outside, mm -hmm. because he hadn't actually been in the war, he didn't come with a lot of the prejudices about the war right. that, that some prominent veterans did. Mm -hmm. So when it came time to study the war at the infantry school, at the command and general staff college and so on, mm -hmm. Uh, those veterans came with some very fixed opinions. Those who hadn't been there, on the other hand, mm -hmm. like Bradley, um, saw that their ideas, their uh, analyses were just as good, better mm -hmm. than the veterans. And I think that gave him the needed confidence to overcome what you suggested at the beginning, mm -hmm. that to have missed what everybody thought was the Great War, and right. the only Great War, uh, was a, a tremendous disadvantage. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, when you think of those who rose, mm -hmm. there are just as many who had sat out World War One as who participated. Well, particularly when you see how the army is, is shrunk after the war, that, that typical American experience until 1953 of shrinking the army when the war is over. Um, yeah, we mentioned George Bradley, and of course, he's one of the two key relationships that keep coming up with regards to Bradley's life and career. And of course, their their interaction at Fort Benning in the late 1920s is essential for, for Bradley's career. But I, I have to ask, was the relationship purely that of the classic senior officer subordinate or was there a matter, matter a measure of like the the mentor? Uh, I think it's the former. Yeah. I don't think there were element personal elements yeah. in it. It uh, is George C. Marshall. After, after all, it yeah. is George C. Marshall, and even FDR's attempts to break down Marshall's mm -hmm. cold reserve failed. FDR being one of the great practitioners of that technique. Sure, um, and. Bradley does not really refer often to uh, personal conversations. 
so no, I don't think it was that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was a sort of fatherly mentoring relationship. I think it was professional. Right. A lot of respect at the very beginning that sure. Marshall had for Bradley right. as a teacher, as a an expert on weapons, which is what he did. For yeah. Uh, so I would I would say it was more that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting again because you know Marshall is in France. He's uh, Persian, he's aide de camp, he's, he's helping planning the Musargon. Uh, he's not necessarily in a direct combat role, but he is in, in action. And he takes Bradley into the infantry school and mentors him. Um, but as you're describing him, in almost dispassionate fashion, that I think a lot of people would kind of rub, scratch their heads about. Yeah, I don't think it was uncommon. I think yeah. that was pretty much the way he dealt with what, what's been referred to as his little black book of yeah. officers that he that he tracked. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt that he that he paid very close attention, mm-hmm. particularly to junior officers, to company mm-hmm. grade officers, right. and identified them early. Yeah. Some of his other stars, Lightning Joe Collins, for instance, right. Corps commander under Bradley at First Army, and then later. 12th Army Group. So there are many examples. Terry Allen is another. Yeah. Uh, Terry Allen may have represented a slightly different case because they had, sh- I believe they shared experience in the 1st Infantry Division. Yeah. And also Allen was a, a, a masterful equestrian. Yeah. And Marshall had a lot of respect for that as well. Right, right. And of course, you know, Mace, Terry Mason Allen has his own issues with his personality. He gets him into trouble later on. We don't need to go into that. Does, it does connect us to the second important relationship for Bradley, inferred, you know, it's inferred in the film, Patton, George's Patton. Very interesting relationship. Like I said before, there's no... A limit to biographies of Patton yeah. and discussion about his personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cannot imagine two more different personalities. Yeah, they weren't close, were they? They were never close yeah. uh, personally, but during the bulge, especially, I think yeah. the relationship took a new and better turn. Yeah, I think that Patton came to respect Bradley more and vice versa. Yeah. As they were thrown together, particularly Brad, yeah. in a very difficult command situation. Mm-hmm. However, I argue in the book that if it had been up to Bradley, he never would have uh, picked George Patton to be third army commander. Right. He considered him out of control, mm-hmm. a prima donna. We've heard all of the labels yeah. before. And it was it was deep. Right. It was a it was a relationship, in fact, that was foisted on him from the beginning. On the subject of personal relationships, how about Bradley and Eisenhower? Another interesting relationship, troubled at times. Yeah. They were never close. As I said uh, throughout, it was sports. Yeah, it yeah. was sports. And he was the team captain, right? He wanted. No, he. Uh, you're talking about Eisenhower. Eisenhower, yeah. Eisenhower suffered a terrible injury right. yeah. as a cadet in a horsemanship exercise Yeah, where he may have even acted audaciously as he was wont to do uh-huh. and got himself into trouble. And that ended his baseball career. Yeah. He then became a cheerleader. 
yeah. uh, so he could stay connected. And he was also in F Company, so he was with the athletes. Yeah. Never close personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't serve together, which is a little unusual since in that period of time when the army shrank so small, yeah. they were bump all of these men were bumping into each other uh, throughout that 20 year period yeah they had the immediate bond mm-hmm. and that covered up a lot i think mm-hmm. but in several of their early encounters and i described this after Kasserine, um Eisenhower, I don't think, was particularly happy to have Eisenhower around. You mean Eisenhower wasn't happy to have Bradley? I'm sorry, Eisenhower wasn't happy to have Bradley around as somebody's eyes and ears, a liaison officer, Mm -hmm. which still, I think, many people don't like somebody hanging around headquarters who doesn't have a real job. On the other hand, it's one of the things that I take away as a lesson. That's a good idea Mm -hmm. to have liaisons and to have what were then called spares because of the intensity of combat and so on. Well, yeah, and certainly in North Africa in those first you know months with the collapse of Second Corps and Lloyd Fredendahl's breakdown, or whatever you want to call it, it is good that Bradley's around for that. We're going to talk about his early World War II postings, and even before he goes to North Africa, he takes charge of the 28th Infantry Division, the Pennsylvania National Guard Division where he oversees its advanced training, he prepares it to go to Europe. Does this experience play a role in shaping Bradley's view of the militia, the citizen-soldier, coming out of being a regular army officer? Bradley had done a lot of work in his assignment in Hawaii Mm -hmm. Uh, on National Guard issues. Mm -hmm. He had done a lot of work working for George Marshall in the G1 in the personnel Mm -hmm. section of the general staff. And in fact, he was nervous that he would get tagged as as an expert on the National Guard Mm -hmm. because it's well known that in wartime, the National Guard, up until recently, hasn't fared very well. And its its officers haven't done very well. You'd say the Second World War is the the breaking of that with the performance of the 28th Division. And that's right. And the performance of Troy Middleton in particular mm-hmm. and his artillery officer, I believe it was Ray McLean. Right, these, right. these were National Guard officers. Yeah. Um, and I think that did quite a bit to turn around Bradley and many other regular Army officers' views of the Guard yeah. and the place of a militia and reserves and so on. Now, of course, when Bradley became Army Chief of Staff, he was he was in the middle of those issues, yeah. particularly as as you were saying before, as the army was shrinking, and then as he became uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, mm-hmm. first chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and the Korean War began. The, it was the inverse; they had yeah. to build up the army, and I think there his changed view of the role of the guard and the reserves was was very very beneficial. Yeah, yeah, no, very very much so. So he comes out North Africa, he's Ike's troubleshooter, he's around after Kasserine Pass. We see the film, it's Patton driving around with the sirens and the tie finds and all that. That's all Hollywood. It's Omar Bradley who's changing the morale and organization there. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Patton, I would say, halted a terrible degradation in mm-hmm. the core, mm-hmm. a loss of morale and cohesion at the command level. Yeah. And he did arrest that, but he left 
way too soon to have the kind of impact that Bradley had. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that the action at El Guitar, where he held the Germans, mm-hmm. wasn't a, a, a very important moment, particularly after Kasserine. Yeah. But it was not the real turnaround of Second Corps. That actually happened in the closing campaign in Tunisia, right. as I argue, uh, where Bradley demonstrated, I think, some innovative thinking, some yeah. risk-taking that he hasn't gotten credit for. But he also comes across is where we begin to see him appear. Well, more so, I think, in Sicily. But we begin to see the foundation of the Bradley legend, of him being, you know, G.I.'s general, who's not going to squander his men, or at least cares for what the, the common foot slogger is facing. I think that's true, and I think that the most... Uh, dramatic example of that uh, happens in Sicily Mm -hmm. when Eisenhower persuades Ernie Pyle, Mm -hmm. even then a very high-profile journalist, uh, to spend some time at Bradley's headquarters. He didn't want to do it, you say. No. uh, Instinctive dislike for officers, number one. Didn't want to get too close to the command, wanted to stay with the ordinary soldiers. And um, just probably d- didn't want to participate in somebody else's PR campaign for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. Because Eisenhower definitely wanted Bradley to get more attention. Yeah. Uh, for his own purposes and for purposes of the army. Mm-hmm. I think that Pyle really liked Bradley. Now, there are yeah. some people who think that the GI general, soldiers general labels were constructions by the newsmen. Uh, as a counter to Patton's personality or because they thought that this was a good tagline. Yeah. I don't think any of that's true. I think that Ernie Pyle genuinely admired Bradley, and one of the reasons was he spent three days at the headquarters, yeah. not just with Bradley, but with a lot of others. Mm-hmm. Bradley's driver, his cook, his aides. Mm-hmm. And he saw how they were relating to each other. And I think it had a real impact on him. And he certainly wrote among the most glowing description of any general that I've ever read by any journalist, Mm -hmm. considering that Ernie Pyle was a hard-bitten character. Oh, yeah. Who by that time was pretty cynical. Well, he had come out of the whole, you know, the riots up in in the Pacific Northwest before the war. And, you know, very much attuned to the idea of the inequalities in American life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. so I, I'm very skeptical when people say, oh, well, you know, that's just a construction. Bradley wasn't like that. Or, well, you know, his men didn't really look at him as GI general. Well, of course, he had 1.2 million men yeah. under his command. They barely knew who their next sure. layer of command was. But we're at counts in the staff and at headquarters yeah. and in personal acts of kindness that I've seen in, in his story. Yeah. I, I think it was a genuine uh, interpretation. Yeah. Well, yeah, you added that to the fact that Bradley, again, early in his career in, in Europe, he almost gets killed several times. He comes very close to death. It's true. And the most dramatic uh, event uh, when his Jeep, I guess, passed over a landmine that yeah. didn't it, Explode! It set him on a course that we see a lot, and I, I've observed this in my career, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure others have as well, where after an event like that, uh, you can develop magical thinking. That yeah. is, I was spared by God 
to do this work. And that's a very dangerous frame of mind. And he, I think, indulged in that, um, even though the image of him is humble, modest, shy. You begin to see that there's a tension there. This is not a one-dimensional man. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more going on there. Yeah. Was he more prone to leave from the front early on? than other army or corps commanders? Well, it's a good question by putting it in the reference of corps command. Yeah. Uh, my, my main teacher, my mentor, Martin Blumenson, uh-huh. wrote uh, that the corps commander is really the highest level of command that's at the edge of the battle. Right. And then army commanders, army group you're commanders, you're talking politics to some extent, boundaries, uh, marriage Management questions, yeah, indeed. Yeah, management yeah. logistics, mm-hmm. uh, the integration of those elements, operations, yeah. and so on. So as a corps commander, I think he demonstrated that kind of approach to leadership. Yeah. He was out in the field, visited his commanders. That was a hallmark of his yeah. style. Yeah. Um, yes, I think at that point, he was among the best practitioners uh, of that art, the art of corps command. Does he make that then a, a benchmark or use as a benchmark for assessing the performance of his subordinates when he rises up? I think that's accurate. Yeah. Uh, of course, he had some great corps commanders oh, when he yeah. was when he was yeah. first army commander. Yeah. Um, and but again, as you go up higher, your your contact with the echelons below you dilutes. It's, it's, so, as an army group commander, his involvement at, at direct. Leadership, I think, is limited. You know, we were talking about personal relationships before. And as we leave Sicily and the Mediterranean, we go to Europe. There, of course, is the other great relationship with Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery. When did the, the relationship turn bad? We know it was a bad relationship. Did it go bad in Italy or did it go bad in France? I think it went bad in France. Uh, yeah. I'm not even sure that Montgomery noticed Bradley in Sicily. He was not inclined to be generous in his evaluations of any American officers that I've been able to find uh, beyond a cursory and uh, programmatic response. Yeah, well, there there was Simpson, though. Ninth, yeah. Ninth Army Command. I think that, that that's true. Yeah, yeah. And Simpson did work well with Montgomery. Yeah. And actually, so did Bradley mm-hmm. when he was First Army Commander. Right. And also the first month of Army Group Command when Montgomery was still the Ground Forces Commander. Mm-hmm. A very peculiar re- command relationship sure. that lasted far too long and raised questions that complicated the alliance and. This is a very strong way to put it, but gave some comfort to the enemy to to watch our top command going at each other, particularly on the issue of who was going to command ground forces. But the real real break came during the bulge when Eisenhower took away Bradley's northern armies and gave them to Montgomery because the bulge had split his forces and was at least a justifiable decision. It enraged Bradley. When you add to that, you know, Montgomery's total insensitivity in a public voice. You know, when he he shows up and gives the press conference, 
the press conference was uh, a, a very nasty event yeah. and was viewed that way at headquarters of 12th Army Group. Yeah. And I mentioned Thomas Biglin before, Bradley's um, liaison with Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And Bigland was in a very difficult position because he, in fact, was one of those few people that you come across who's able to maintain dual loyalties in a conflict situation. Mm-hmm. I admire him greatly uh, mm-hmm. from what I've learned about him. Yeah. Uh, he, he saw what Montgomery was doing and it, it distressed him greatly yeah. because he knew what was going on at the American headquarters. Mm-hmm. In fact, he knew better than anybody what was going on at both headquarters mm-hmm. because he was traveling back and forth at the highest level, yeah. speaking to Montgomery and Bradley every day. Yeah. That was the worst time for him. The bulge was the worst time for all of them. Right. But that press conference and the spillover poisoned the atmosphere for months after that. Sure. Sure. Were there any British or Commonwealth commanders that Bradley got along with or respected? Bradley admired greatly uh, Alexander, who yeah. was the group commander in both um, Sicily and yeah. uh, Tunisia, yeah. and then went on to be uh, commander in Italy. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of respect for Brian Horrocks, thir- 30 Corps commander. Yeah. Uh, he saw him early in Africa. Then Horrocks was badly wounded, mm-hmm. and when he came back in Northwestern Europe, Bradley took a real interest, really liked him. Yeah. Uh, apart from that, not really. Um, yeah. Those are the two that stand out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there could have been implications for inter-allied relations had things gone wrong, or, or had the war taken an alternate turn, perhaps. It's possible. But that's a counterfactual. So, so Bradley comes to London. He comes back in October 43, takes charge of FUSAG, 1st U.S. Army Group. How advanced was Overlord planning at this point? I mean, I think what I want to ask is, how much of his own stamp does Bradley put on Overlord? Not much. Not much. It had been worked by the Cossack Group for a long time, as you know. It was in basic form. Bradley was a strong advocate for the airdrop, Mm-hmm. and may have been persuasive in that debate. The others were very, very hesitant because of the terrible losses, particularly to friendly fire incidents in previous trials. Oh, yeah. uh, so that was one area where I think he his weight mattered. I think he also had uh, some things to say about which divisions would go where uh, and the debate as to how many the beachhead could support at the beginning. What role did he have in the in the decision to use or not use the uh, amphibious tanks? The that was one of his failures, as mm-hmm. I record it. Uh, mm-hmm. He decided that using the British equipment would be logistically difficult. He had the support of the general staff officer of ordnance and the uh, the G4, the logistics guy, that this would be very problematic and difficult. It would require a whole new infrastructure and support and so on and so on, and didn't do it. And it's absolutely the truth that a lack of direct tank support at Omaha Beach was a disaster. None of none of the uh, inflatable raft tanks worked, and those that were beached by LSTs 
uh, as a result of the bravery of those skippers, yeah. were knocked out immediately. Now, in the other example where these tanks were successfully deployed, it's hard to argue that that demonstrated what would have happened on Omaha because the resistance was so strong. Yeah. But they, they got there intact, yeah. which didn't happen on Omaha. That was Bradley's call, and that was a bad mistake. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And there's also he ignores completely the one general officer who's got experience in Pacific amphibious operations and, you know, has has landed in front of very stiff opposition. It's true. His treatment of Giro was uh, terrible. Yeah. I, I think it must have gone back and was personal from a long time before, maybe, yeah. maybe West Point. Didn't yeah. want to get into that too much. Um, Martin always used to say, almost like a doctor, do no harm unless you have to. Uh, and I didn't feel that that warranted that much more uh, investigation, but it is true that he ignored him completely, and he was the only one who had any real amphibious experience. Now, Joe Collins had experience fighting in the Pacific, but he didn't have anything like the experience that uh, really had. Well, Bradley kind of, you know, he, he kind of had a particular spring of personal bad luck when it came to these landings, too. I mean, between <laughs> what he experienced in Sicily and what he experienced at Torch and then the boil at, at Normandy... Um, was that like a personal totem for him, you think? Does he worry I, about that? I wonder. Uh, he had a couple of habits that irritated these, uh, particularly uh, hemorrhoids, where he would, uh. he would go on binges of, of eating ice cream and <laughs> very, very rich cake. I mean, I kept coming across this. Yeah. Uh, it went back... I think it goes back to how he grew up so poor. Sure. And when he went off, uh, for instance, to take the exams at uh, Jefferson Barracks, and even when he went to West Point, he was one of the few people who loved the food because he he hadn't had anything like that. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, I think these things plagued him. I, I read one review of my book where the reviewer said, Bradley is a revealed warts and all, or maybe that should be, Piles and boils. <laughs> but imagine how horrible that is on to be standing on the bridge of the yeah. cruiser when the invasion is about to begin, yeah. and all you can concentrate on is terrible yeah. pain that can't be treated because you can't take any kind of narcotic to track yeah. the pain. So awful. How does he respond to the Bocage country? After the land. Another bad mistake. Hard to imagine that the cartographic guys, the engineers, intelligence, didn't see the problem. They knew what Bokash was, but they uh, completely ignored any kind of training or solutions to the problem. Well, that leads to a pair of operational questions. We, we, we get out of the Bokash. You know, Cobra, of course, is, is a great operation, the breakthrough operation that gives birth to Third Army. Where does Bradley's role in planning and executing Cobra end, and where does Patton's begin? Patton had nothing to do with Cobra. Uh -huh. uh, Cobra was totally the creation of Omar Bradley. There's no question about yeah. that. It, he conceived it in his head. He worked the plan over in his trailer. In fact, Chet Hansen set up mm -hmm. a specific trailer for this. Mm -hmm. Bradley hung up his acetate maps, mm -hmm. took out his colored pencils, and worked the problem. 
where the breakthrough would occur, how wide the saturation bombing would be, and so on and so on. Very, very detailed involvement. Um, almost too much involvement for an army commander, but he was making a transition. Uh, and he was also at the same time, and I should have pointed this out earlier, when he came to London, he not only had command of FUSAG, which was the uh, army group that was being planned for the moment when Third Army would be activated, when there were enough Americans on the continent to justify having an army group headquarters over two field armies. Mm-hmm. He, he also had command of First Army, and First Army's planning requirement in Horizon was the actual invasion. Mm-hmm. So he spent a considerable amount of time on that. As Cobra started to move and develop, he was in the process of taking over Army Group Command. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty discreet period of time of planning. It was Bradley's baby. Uh, when uh, Patton showed up, there was one corps that would become the the core of the Third Army already on the line. So it, those plans had already been developed. What about the, the failure to close the salient at Mortain? We referenced uh, that earlier. A lot of people bring that up uh, in critique of, of Bradley. I, I have a different view. Mm-hmm. As I said, he'd only been an Army Group commander for one week mm-hmm. when this happened, when it started to develop. Mm-hmm. And Initially, Bradley was thinking in in terms of encirclement, Mm -hmm. but it was early in his command. He was still technically subordinate to Montgomery. It would have required changing boundary lines, which had already been negotiated on the fly in the middle of combat, largely as a result of the initiative of Patton, which (laughs) presented political problems for Bradley, certainly for Montgomery. And there was a real risk of friendly fire incident when two uh, elements are converging to close a trap. Uh, Coordination of those lead elements is crucial, and it's not inconceivable and has happened many times that that friendly forces fire on each other, particularly in that kind of a uh, situation. So uh, there were Good reasons for being cautious. Of course, in retrospect, uh, we we now know that it, it could have been done, and those thirty or forty or fifty thousand Germans who escaped from the pocket and made it back to the Siegfried line certainly wouldn't have had to uh, deal with them. On the other hand, the encirclement battle at Mons early in September captured most of those guys. So uh, I think that was maybe the answer to Fillet's. Well, you know, from Fillet, it's a quick jump then, well, relatively quick jump to December 1944. And as we've implied earlier, Bradley does bear some responsibility for not taking seriously the coming offensive. Now, is that cognitive dissonance? Is he unwilling to accept the fact that the Germans could have recovered is it victory disease? Is it another set of factors? No, I think it was victory disease. Now, remember, uh, the in the two months or three months before the bulge, uh, the United States Army uh, blazed through Europe. Uh, six weeks, they were at the border of Germany. So it was it was a staggering performance by any calculation. They had good reason to be confident, but they got overconfident and they missed signals. 
from the very lowest level all the way up to the highest yeah. level. And intelligence officers in particular competed with each other to come up with the most glowing descriptions of how the Germans were on the edge of defeat. So there was a very, very strong prejudice there. Mm-hmm. Also, Radley had committed um, both Hodges and Patton to offensive operations. Mm-hmm. And his initial interpretation was that this was just the Germans' way of trying to stop that rather than a full-blown, heavily uh, backed uh, offensive with all of the remaining strategic capability of the German army, which was still considerable. What is equally troubling is after what I consider the second greatest intelligence failure of the war after Pearl Harbor. He still reacted sluggishly, Mm -hmm. took his time about getting back to headquarters, a full 36 hours from the time he first heard about the attack at Eisenhower's headquarters. That's another thing people are not generally aware of. Mm -hmm. Almost none of the senior officers were actually at their posts when Germans attacked. It was a week before Christmas. And there were a lot of reasons, and they were scattered around, including the top intelligence officer of First Army, which bore the brunt of the attack. So, yes, it was a catastrophe. He seemed to forget everything that he had learned. He didn't visit his commanders, one of whom, Courtney Hodges, may have been suffering a nervous breakdown. There right. are people who believe that. Rick Atkinson, for one, I read that. Yeah. argues that. Uh, whatever happened to Hodges would have been visible to somebody who visited mm-hmm. him. Um, he didn't have his hand on the pulse of the battle. And consequently, he was resistant to steps that would normally be considered, like moving First Army headquarters to a position where it would be closer to 12th Army Group mm-hmm. and Third Army. And he resisted that, said Mm -hmm. that it would show uh, a complete lack of faith, some very convoluted explanation, rather than it was the practical, smart thing to do. Well, that's that's what triggers the rift. I mean, the the start of the serious rift that he has with Eisenhower, too. No question. In fact, uh, there's some evidence that Bradley threatened to resign if the transfer of his armies to Montgomery was not reversed after the battle was over. Of course, Eisenhower reacted with equal coldness to that. So I I believe that was the end of their personal relationship, such as it was. After the war, Bradley's posted to lead the VA, the Veterans Administration. Now, some might have seen this as a downgrade in responsibilities. How does Bradley view it? I think that's exactly what he thought. Uh, He viewed it that way. He said that. He uh, felt it was the end of his career, in spite of the fact that the president of the United States promised him that it wasn't. That was at a time where that mattered. And uh, Truman had special knowledge and understanding of the Army. He'd been Mm -hmm. an an artillery officer in World War I. And he knew uh, what Bradley wanted in his career. Mm -hmm. And... Bradley was, in fact, I believe, the first cabinet-level officer. Now, back then, the VA administrator was not a cabinet officer. That happened under Ronald Reagan, I believe. But um, he allowed him to remain in uniform, something that came up recently with the national security advisor, who also was, was in uniform and whose career ended after his public service. So that would not be inconceivable also, given that it was a political hot potato then and now. And when Bradley took over, the VA was in the middle of a medical crisis Mm -hmm. and an administrative nightmare facing the return of 16 million veterans, which would basically quintuple 
the population of veterans with everything that that implied. Right. And of course, we have to look at the VA as it existed in May, June 1945. It's a far cry from what's going to take shape in 1947 and 1948. You know, it's not a, you know a noble you know infrastructure that's going to be dedicated to re-education and medical treatment and you know family support. It's I think his role was crucial. That mm-hmm. it could have failed. Right. The GI Bill, in particular, could mm-hmm. have failed. The implementation was crucial, mm-hmm. and Bradley pulled it off, not without critique, not without mistakes, but he built an organization from I think sixty thousand to more than two hundred and fifty. Uh, the number of hospitals that were commissioned would lead to a, a virtual doubling of the facilities in a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time. Took on special interests that had been influencing the choice of location of hospitals for a very Mm -hmm. long time, took on the civil service when they stood in his way, getting more doctors, which they needed. So Mm -hmm. uh, it was a a very uh, active time and in some ways a very, very fruitful time for Mm -hmm. him and for the country. Well, I mean, it also gives him personal contact with Perry Truman, who's an unknown quantity. How does their their relationship? I I think that's a story in and of itself. I started to probe it, but (laughs) when you consider how long that relationship lasted, from 1945 to 1953, Mm -hmm. the entire presidency of Harry Truman, the only other example that comes to mind is George Marshall and Franklin Roosevelt. It wasn't as long, and it didn't encompass as many activities. Certainly, Mm -hmm. it encompassed world war, but it didn't encompass... The VA, for instance, the transformation of the army. It didn't encompass a Joint Chiefs of Staff either. Because, you know, while Marshall was FDR's army representative, he also would contend with Ernest King as his naval representative. And given the discussions these days, again, politically, the role of the Chief of Staff is completely ignored. Admiral Leahy was FDR's Chief of Staff, uh, a very senior naval officer. So there was a lot of conflict. There was no real structure of the Joint Chiefs. It emerged as the war progressed. Uh, It's very interesting that now there's a lot of discussion about our military, how it's structured, Mm -hmm. how it should be structured, uh, how much power resides in theater commanders, Mm -hmm. the president, and so on and so on. This was all laid out in 1947, in the National Security Act of Mm -hmm. 1947, Mm -hmm. which, among other things, established the Defense Department, the National Security Mm -hmm. Council, the civilian heads of our military Central Intelligence Agency. But the other thing that was developing was a drive towards jointness, Mm -hmm. that is, very close, almost seamless cooperation between the branches. And Bradley coming in as chairman of the JCS at that period, you reason has deep experience in joint operations. He does, but he runs right into the old network and the old resistance of each service. Uh, he mm-hmm. participated in what was called the Revolt of the Admirals oh, over uh, defense appropriations for a giant supercarrier. USS United States. Exactly. 60,000 tons. Now we would think that's nothing. That was something back then. Well, it's also the the questions and dilemmas about atomic issues, what the future of an army is going to be in an atomic environment, Uh, Korea, 
Korea was the changing point, yeah. I would say. Uh, I don't think that when they set up the official structure of the Joint Chiefs, they anticipated another war so quickly. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, it happened almost immediately. And that that shaped the office and that shaped the, the structure of the relationship between the chairman and the president, which remains crucial. Bradley was important because he commanded the respect of the president at the very beginning. And that gave great weight to the role of the chairman as the principal military advisor to right. the executive branch. That, I think, was tremendously enhanced by Bradley. And here, I think his personality and those elements of it that we are most uh, familiar with served him well with Truman. Truman did not like characters like Patton, right. as we see with MacArthur. Yeah, well, I guess you ask about Douglas MacArthur... I mean, that's probably Bradley's biggest challenge, I would think, in Korea, is how do you resolve an insubordinate superior, at least certainly in terms of great time and grade? I mean, well, it's, remember... It's, a, it's an awkward relationship. Well, remember that the chairman doesn't command anyone. It doesn't really have a billet of command. Yeah. So it's his advice to Truman that's important because it was not his decision to make. Sure. But he was initially reluctant to take a stance on McCarthy. That's right. He was, so was George Marshall because it, it sets an incredible precedent, removing a theater commander essentially. But there's no doubt in my mind that it was justified mm -hmm. that MacArthur's act was insubordination mm -hmm. and that's all you need. In fact, you don't even need that. It's totally within the discretion of the commander-in-chief to relieve anybody he chooses for yeah, any the reason. The precedence of Abraham Lincoln for that, that's right. certainly. That's right. What about the growing McCarthyist tide domestically? I mean, that's a challenge for the Army as well on Bradley's watch. The growing hearings, the, the questions about where are there communists, are there communists? I didn't see too much of that because okay. by the... Um, that's, again, another interesting question for probing what happened after. Mm -hmm. He left in 1953, Bradley. Uh, it's also interesting that he never worked in government again, particularly in Eisenhower's administration. Yeah. It, it points to what I was saying before about their relationship or lack of a relationship. And I think it was a real disappointment to George Marshall, who was the patron of both right. Eisenhower and Bradley, and no doubt would have wanted to see Bradley's public career go forward. Well, after retirement, well, how's, does Bradley stay involved in foreign policy and defense policy decision-making? Not particularly. He doesn't become part of the old men or the establishment? He he does to some extent, but he's not very active. Yeah. Uh, during the initial stages of the Vietnam War, he was called back in by Johnson, along yeah. with a few others, and basically said the company line about what was happening right at the end of the tunnel and so right. on and so on. Right. So not, not a very impressive final appearance on that score, but he hadn't been involved for yeah. 20 years. Uh, again, I think that was because of the relationship with Eisenhower. Yeah, what, what did he do I mean, after, after his military career? His life wasn't over yet. No, he, he lived a very long time. He sat on numerous boards. He played tons of golf. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Um, he worked on endowing the uh, an element of, or an institute part of the War College. 
And as I referred earlier to the money that uh, they made the Bradleys from the movie patent, yeah. that uh, laid the foundation of that endowment, which exists even now. So uh, that, I think, occupied most of his time. But it was the life of a retired senior executive, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, he meets Kitty, his second wife. In the 1960s, right? Actually, he, he first met her in 1950 on a trip that he made as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He was still married at that point. He was still married. He married his high school sweetheart, mm-hmm. even before high school, in fact. Um, and it was better part of 50 years, I think. Yeah. She died in 1965. It's not clear to me how close Brad and Kitty were before that, whether they had reconnected in a heavy way, although there's some evidence that they had. Um, but there again, my That's not the purpose. My take was yeah. do no harm, except reveal what you could. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because Kitty had prepared a film treatment for a story about Omar Bradley that was based on Cobra. I found that in the archives. That was very interesting. So she interviewed him about that, and there are uh, tapes of those interviews as well. But she had no impact on his views of political and military Uh affairs during the war. And I never found any evidence of that from his first wife, Mary. I personally think that the that that was all removed. That mm-hmm. that Kitty, who basically curated the image of Bradley that we've been speaking about to some right. extent uh, throughout their entire marriage and even after, that she basically got rid of of anything that showed uh, Mary's involvement. Yeah. Well, I understand too. That I mean, I never met Kitty. I, I understand people who did meet her. She was quite a formidable personality in her own right. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. Um, well, what lessons do we draw? I mean, I'm, I'm always loath to go into the lessons learned question, but I think it's appropriate here. When we ask what lessons could be drawn from Omar Bradley's life and service, you know, is there anything we should consider as we look at the leadership style of historical figures, even as we close in, you know, almost a century since his, his it is a century since his career began. Uh, like you, I'm generally skeptical of leadership lessons in a can yeah. because it's all about the detail. And in this case, uh, I, I take away what some might think are small things. Uh, his operating style, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm how he conducted his day, how he maintained close coordination with his subordinates. That's mm-hmm. crucial. How he approached his organization in terms of his freedom of action. For instance, while he was a corps commander, especially when he was an assistant corps commander to Patton, a role, by the way, that doesn't exist on the table of organization and, and equipment right. for, for a corps. There is no role for a vice commander, deputy commander. Um, And yet he saw the value of that. So fast forward to the period where he's army chief of staff. Mm -hmm. One of the things he discovers is he's got too much to do, strategic and operational. And so he creates a vice chief of staff of the army. And that role has been held by some very impressive men who Mm -hmm. then went on to even greater command. What that taught me was if you've got the power and the freedom to change the organization. By all means do so. By all means do it if you see an advantage. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing that now at the highest level of our government with a lot of controversy sure. about it. But the truth is that the office itself, 
dictates how much freedom there is. Bradley used that freedom. I think that's a, that's a very important mm -hmm. lesson. What I said before about liaisons and spares mm -hmm. and people of a very high rank and experience who don't have a statutory job can be very, very valuable, as we saw in these examples we discussed. So that's another thing I would take away. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, and this comes through in the bulge uh, most of all, do not change practices that have worked really well, no. particularly under stress. Mm. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the interview, Steve. And at the end, we always have a customary final question or two. And uh, I'm going to start with the first. You know, what are you reading these days <laughs> that you might want to share with our audience? We're always interested to give them new ideas or, or new avenues. Uh, that's a that's an uh, interesting question because when I'm actually writing a book, I very rarely read anything else. Yeah. And now that this monster project is over, uh -huh. uh, my night table has a couple of titles on it. Good. So one that I'm reading is a biography of a man named Henry Lawton, a Civil War uh, commander who then became uh, a general in the Spanish-American War and fought a great campaign at El Caney. Yeah. And then went off to the Philippines and was killed in action. One of the things mm -hmm. that I've written about in my whole career are fallen commanders, fallen mm -hmm. general officers. And I, I wrote this piece published in Army History magazine and thought of doing more but never did. And I recently found out that my publisher has published uh, a biography. Interesting uh bearing on what, how we started, written by a judge <clears throat> who had a personal connection to some element of the story. I don't remember, and mm -hmm. I haven't gotten to it yet. But um, I picked it up, and on virtually the first or second page, he was thanking me for my... Oh. So I felt I, I have to read this. That's always pleasant when you yeah, see so that. Yeah, that was great. So I, I got that. I also am um, reading a, a spy novel by Daniel Silva, Okay. I, I, I like that because it sharpens uh, my powers of observation sure. and description and so on and so on. And I'm reading um, a history of the 15th Air Force. I'm thinking of maybe doing some work um, on an Air Force general. Well, that brings up the second question, which is what's next for you writing in terms of writing? Uh, what, what, what's the next project? I'm wrestling with two ideas. Um, I'm wrestling with something more contemporary that comes out of the work that I've just done, mm -hmm. particularly what we were discussing uh, towards the end of the interview, mm -hmm. the structures that came into place in 1947 and 1949 when the mm -hmm. laws really passed, how that evolved, where that leads us, mm -hmm. what the organization of the military is right now and what the challenges are and whether that needs to be looked at, mm -hmm. particularly war in the gray zone, mm -hmm. which is a term that I discovered special operations uses as well. Yeah. So that's one idea. And in a more traditional vein, I'm, I'm wrestling, as I said, with another biography of Hap Arnold in this mm -hmm. case. That would have been my choice. <laughs> where that might lead to, if I live long enough and I stay good at this, that might be part of a trilogy, which begins with ground, Bradley, air, hap, uh -huh. and who knows, sea. Somebody from sea. <laughs> Spruance, maybe. I don't know. Well, thanks, Steve, for taking the time to join us here at the Society for Military Historians annual meeting. 
to join us at New Books in Military History. Had a great time talking with you. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it very much. That's great. And for all of our listeners, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off. Thank you all for listening.